We are going to be in Acts chapter 18, so if you have your Bible, you would open that with me there. I will say that I had um, this grand idea that I was going to preach the whole chapter this morning. And uh, so in my study, and I, I, I study through the whole chapter, that, and I have my notes, and everything seems great, and I sit down to prepare what I would deliver this morning and realized that as I was at verse 3, I had seven pages of notes, and I realized that this was not going to happen on a day like today, because I'm pretty certain that we'll be pretty hot by one o'clock. Uh, and uh, that, so um, two hours of, uh, of listening to me preach, I think many of you will either pass out or be asleep. So I decided that we will uh, look through uh, verse 11 this morning. As we come to this passage, we think about this fact that we just sang, right? His love remembers not our wrongs. His mercy is more. So we will ask the Holy Spirit to superintend our time. We'll read the text under consideration, and then we will examine the text for understanding and application. So if you would pray with me. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill us afresh this morning, that you would illuminate the passage to our minds for understanding, that you would inflame our hearts to receive this good news, this gospel with joy, and that you would engage our will to obedience and faith, Lord. We need grace, God, to take the places where we work and to transform that work toward kingdom advance. Redeem, Lord, our regular work that it would be useful as a witness for Jesus Christ. Give us, Lord, a kingdom-first, preoccupied focus. Father in heaven, we ask for all that gather in the name of Jesus this morning that your churches would be filled with the purpose to glorify you. We pray this morning for our friends at Wapato Valley. I pray for Pastor Jay, that you would anoint him with the Holy Spirit, that he would clearly, correctly proclaim the gospel. And may the hearers be moved to do your will as your text commands. We ask, Lord, that in this place you give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as you are uh, able, if you would, uh, stand with me for the reading of the infallible, inerrant word of God from Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is God's word. Y'all may be seated. As we have uh, talked for some time in looking at the book of Acts and, and defining what its, what its overall sort of message is, a recurring theme that we see in the book of Acts has been that this is the Great Commission in action. Or to put it another way, this is the Holy Spirit-empowered witness of Jesus Christ through the apostles given to the church as her primary purpose and occupation. The primary purpose and occupation of the church, its primary job and role and duty, is to be a witness to Jesus Christ. That is to tell the truth in the world about who the Christ is. This is our primary primary purpose and our primary occupation. So I would pose to us this morning that the faithful Christian, the faithful church member, the faithful pastor, the faithful mom, faithful dad, grandparent, student, the faithful truck driver, software engineer, instructional assistant, janitor, while you might be employed in these various roles and occupations, our first and foremost occupation is witnessing or telling the truth of Jesus Christ. You see, to love God is to be a faithful witness as a Christian's primary occupation. The Great Commission is the primary occupation of every disciple of Jesus Christ. This duty was given to you and to I by the one who loved you and freed you from your sin. When we think about the work that we are called to do, whatever it is, we know that that work is, is really, our, our daily work is, is that which is underneath our primary work. And our primary work is to give glory and to be a witness to the one who loved us and set us free from our sins. And this, for the Christian, is to be his or her preoccupation. So let us look uh, more closely at the first four verses. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So Paul, here in this uh, text, as he comes to Corinth, he has departed from Athens, and he's departed not out of persecution, but he's departed because his reception there was cold, and there was little prospect of doing good work. He has left the people who are preoccupied with the latest trend, and they're occupied with being idle, having idle leisure so that they can contemplate what is new. And though Paul was entitled to to getting help from supporting churches, uh, and he was a learned man, that is, he was educated, Paul did not think it below himself to work with his hands. He, He was careful to maintain 
himself by his own labors, uh, not to make the gospel a burden on anyone. This is affirmed in the second letter of Corinthians. In chapter 11, verse 7, it says, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Paul had a right to command that he be paid for his work in the gospel. He could have thought that to labor with his hands was a waste of his talent since he was schooled above many of his contemporaries. But Sunday through Friday, he rolled up his sleeves and he went to work at a trade. On the Sabbath, he continued the work at his primary occupation, and that was the public proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His ordinary work was a means for his primary work. I remember a time in a church when a guy came to me and he said that he was going to transform the whole ministry. He, could, he was a musician, so he was super talented. He could do that. And he uh, had led uh, youth programs for years, so he could do that. And he, so he, and he could preach, he said, right? So he comes to me and he says, you know, if you just bring me in here, I'll be able to do all of these things and transform your ministry. And I said, okay. So what do you do when the toilet's overflowing? He says, well, I'll go get somebody. I said, no. You grab a plunger and you unplug the toilet. That's what you do. And if you can't do that, then you can't do those other things. See, for some reason in that guy's mind, that sort of work was below him. And of course, he went away. I never saw him again. Because unless he could be exalted, he didn't want to have anything to do with, with the real truth of work. All work is worthy. All work is gospel worthy. It proclaims the truth of Jesus Christ when we do it as unto him, right? It is all worthy. So as we think about this, right, um, Paul's ordinary work was, was just that which led to or helped or confirmed or uh, financed his primary work, which is in the gospel. And I think about us, every form of employment that we engage in, so long as it doesn't promote sin or it doesn't go against the biblical moral ethic, is to be used in supporting your primary work as a great commission saint, as one who is declaring a true witness of who Jesus Christ is. See, there's no occupation that is uh, so small or so low that it cannot be used uh, as the means that God gives us to be engaged in Great Commission work. Even our duties within the church are of equal import in the cause of the Great Commission. As I said before, this question, should the elders be too good to unclog a toilet? Should the pastor say, I can't pick up trash? at the end of the service because I have this role? No. Should the worship leader be above, you know, hauling out their own gear or no? All of us have a job to do and there is no job that is too low for us to engage in. And as each one of us is working in whatever task it is that the Lord has set before us, we are doing that as we are building up the church in love and demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter what it is. It's not too small. You're demonstrating the reality of the kingdom of God. I can unclog a toilet. I can clean up 
a, a child's poopy diaper and do it with joy because I know that this is contributing to God's praise and to His glory. And it is all part of kingdom work. So as we look at our passage, we see that Paul uh, at Corinth, he meets up with Aquila and Priscilla who've been commanded to leave Rome uh, and he joins them in earning his own way in a trade of tent making. So Corinth at this time was a capital city of the Roman province of Achaia. The town had a bad reputation. It had a really bad reputation for immorality. And as you guys have probably read in 1 Corinthians, you can see the, the bad reputation is warranted and it even invades the church. And the importance of that town made it a goal uh, of Paul's after he left um, Athens. From his letters to the church, uh, Paul's concern with uh, the church at Corinth dealt with internal problems, internal dissensions, and preventing unsound doctrine from, from invading the church. But what uh, Luke is, is looking at here is, is, is a little different. See, the things that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians are really more detrimental to spiritual growth uh, than persecution from the outside. Luke's concern is to describe the founding of the churches through the witness of Paul, rather than to describe the issues that the church would later struggle with. Paul describes his rival at Corinth as having um, come with some trouble. As we look at 1 Corinthians 2, he says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So he comes here in, in some struggle. And Paul would be one who should want to get some encouragement from his work. Do you ever feel very discouraged in your own labor and your own work? That the goals and plans that the Lord has placed upon your heart for your work just seem, you seem to be struggling. You're battling every day and you're doing the work and, and you're, you're being as faithful as you can, but the fruit is slow. And it can seem like a real struggle. And sometimes we need some encouragement. And we're going to see that Paul gets much encouragement here in the Lord while he remains occupied in the gospel. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul receives his first bit of encouragement here on the arrival of Silas and Timothy. They brought with him gifts from Macedonia to supply Paul with the means to be occupied with the word of God, not only on the Sabbath, but now on every day. The church at Philippi is commended in Paul's letter of the same name for their encouraging gifts. In Philippians 4.15 it said, And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. The Philippian church, no doubt, had used the resources that they gained from their everyday labors to supply the means of support for the primary occupation of the Great Commission work as they partnered with Paul, who was particularly set apart for the task of spreading the gospel, establishing and building up churches. With the encouragement of Silas and Timothy's arrival, Paul becomes even more pressing in his preaching. He's pressed to, by the Spirit to testify to Christ every day. And not only on the Sabbath. Just a side note about our Great Commission work. We can look at some of the characteristics of Paul's preaching. When we look at verse uh, 4, we see that he reasoned in the synagogue. You see, in verse 4, we see that Paul was reasonable. 
He comes not by force, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is scriptural and rational. Secondly, in this passage, uh, we see in that uh, he is persuasive. It says that he persuaded Jews and Greeks. He's persuasive. This denotes a sense of urgency, a sense of passion with, with uh, cogent, biblical, well-reasoned arguments. He believed what he preached from the heart as a matter of study and of personal experience in the truth that he was proclaiming. And he was urgent to admonish the hearers to not refuse the offer of salvation. And finally, with the encouragement of Silas and, and uh, Timothy's arrival, Paul becomes even more pressing in his preaching. He's pressed by the Holy Spirit to testify to Christ every day. We would do well to follow this model in our own work, I think. Our witness should be first biblical. It should be first biblical. And it should be reasonable. There's this cartoon where uh, this crusader, he's riding around on a horse and he's carrying a big shield with a cross on it. And he's thrusting a spear down on the throat of this guy who's laying on the ground. And the guy on the ground is saying in this cartoon caption, tell me more about this Christianity. I'm terribly interested. See, we need to be reasonable. We need to be biblical. And we need to be reasonable. We need to let the Word be offensive, not our personalities. Right? The Word is going to have its offense to those who don't want to hear it. Right? But we in ourselves uh, should not be offensive in our personalities. And third, we should own the truth that we proclaim. We should own it from a matter of personal experience and conviction. We need to be urgent in our efforts. Salvation, you see, salvation on one hand and the wrath of God hang in the balance. They hang in the balance of our everyday interactions with people who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, that's what hangs in the balance. Is the wrath of God or salvation in Christ? Those two things hang in the balance. Every moment that we speak to an unbeliever is a moment of crisis. It's a moment of crisis for them whether they even know that, that it is a moment or not. It is receive Jesus Christ and be justified in Him to eternal life or reject Him. And the wrath of God remains upon you. It is a moment of crisis for them. Moving to verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled Him, He shook out His garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. Many of the Jewish hearers of Paul's proclamation of the gospel, they continue in their contrary ways, in opposition to the gospel of Christ. King James and the NASB render verse 6 differently. It renders it this way. They opposed themselves and blasphemed. They set themselves in battle array against holy God, according to Matthew Henry. They set themselves in battle array against holy God. They've set themselves against God in rejecting what Paul had to deliver to them and in being, uh, having animosity towards the deliverer. They cannot argue against the reasoned and passioned plea of Paul. They couldn't argue. So they resorted to violent opposition against the messenger and the God who sent him. 
As I was thinking through this passage, and this has been a very big struggle for me over a number of years, to really wrap my head and heart around this one question. I've asked myself this question multiple times. When do we give up? When do we give up? I've asked myself that multiple times. I used to answer that question always with this, never. Because you see, our work will be rejected by some. But I think when it's clear to us that the hearer is opposed to God, he's opposed to his Christ, he's opposed to his word, we can move on confidently that we have been faithful to command what the scriptures command. To observe all that Jesus commanded is what we've asked them. Sometimes it can be time to just shake the dust off the sandals and leave the hearer to answer to God. Leave them to hear it. The answer to God. If you would turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. I want to look at this as an example. Luke, chapter 14. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse uh, 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Paul here gives them over in verse 6 of our text. He gives them over to their rebellion to God. But he doesn't give up on the gospel. He doesn't give up on the work. He gives them over to their rejection. When they opposed and they reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He gives them over, but he doesn't give up on the work. So I still would answer that question that I've asked myself, when do you ever give up? Never. I still am answering it, never. I'm never going to give up, but I will give somebody over. I will give somebody over and bring the gospel to the next person the Lord leads to me to. If he has closed that door by their own rebellion against him, I'll leave them to it, and I'll move on. Right? He doesn't give up on the work he's called to. He says, brethren, if you won't come to the table, I will go and search the marginalized. I will search the weak. I will search for the poor in spirit. And I think about that, right? In the, in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't Jesus say that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God? Theirs is the kingdom of God, the poor in spirit. 
I'm so thankful that that is the truth. That the God who saved me came to one who was poor in spirit. Poor in spirit can be just a, a, a more pleasant way of saying a wretched, horrible sinner opposed to holy God. One who, whose condition is so bad he can't get out of it. And God knew my condition and sent His Son to save me. And said, the kingdom is yours. Understand your condition. Repent and believe in me and the kingdom is yours. Understand your condition. I paid it all. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he says, if you won't receive it, if you won't receive the invitation, then fine. I'll go to those who are weak. I'll go to those who are poor in spirit. I'll go to those whom you marginalize. Because they'll recognize their condition and their great need for the Christ. Those are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs. Not those who think so well of themselves that they can't hear, right? That's kind of the problem here, right? You get with, with the religious community who thinks they have the answers. But the church is filled with people who, I think if we all would agree with this, we are people who did not have the answer. We are all people who didn't have the answer. And then we looked upon the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit convinced us that Christ is the answer. That His work is the answer for us. We figured that out, right? Not because we were special, not because we were smart, but because we were poor in spirit and God in His great love freed us from our sins and gave us faith that we might believe. Right? That's where He's taken us. I'm innocent, He says. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. And He left there and He went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Having entered Corinth in weakness and fear and much trembling, Paul has received a bit of encouragement from Aquila and Priscilla. First, they were partners in commerce, and they were partners in Christian fellowship. And then a second bit of encouragement comes as Paul works. His second bit of encouragement is that his partners in the gospel, Silas and Timothy, have come. And now we see another encouragement in this part of the passage. We see another encouragement for Paul coming from a Gentile neighbor and also from a ruler of the synagogue. He's a Gentile neighbor, invites him into his house. If they won't receive you there, I'll receive you here. Be encouraged. And then the leader of the synagogue comes to faith, he and his whole family. Certainly Paul had to be encouraged in his spirit that the Lord was actually doing this work and he was just steady to do what it is that God had called him to do. He was faithful to work with his hands when he had to and he was faithful to use that work in his continued work as a proclaimer of the truth, a witness of Jesus Christ. And Paul could be encouraged that although a great number of his kinsmen had rejected Christ, one of the leading men of the synagogue received the gospel and his whole family is converted. Amid adversity, the gospel has its effect. Right? Amid adversity, the gospel has its effect. Just like we saw from Acts chapter 13, verse 48. 
It said, as many as who were appointed to eternal life believed. For the sake of faith of God's elect people, we're called to great commission work. You see, remember we talked weeks ago about a divine appointment? This was a divine appointment that through Paul's trouble and Paul's rejection, Titius, Justice, and Crispus received eternal life. Be encouraged that though most of us, most of our great commission work will be met with opposition. It will be met with animosity. But through that animosity, through the work that we are called to do, we can trust this. As many as God has appointed to eternal life will believe. As many. There's not one of them that will be lost. I believe then that Paul is going to get the ultimate encouragement as he goes, and this as it comes directly from the Lord. And then the Lord said to Paul, verse 9, one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. Here's the encouragement. Encouragement sometimes, you know, sounds like, uh, oh gosh, the Word has left me. It's still not there. Um, I guess I'm old or something. Um, I used to be able to remember everything I was going to say, but it's gone. Um, but encouragement can kind of sound like correction or admonition, right? And to continue on, to press on. Sometimes we need a kick in the pants is, an, is as good of an encouragement as an arm around the shoulder. That's kind of what I'm getting at, right? So he gets both. He gets a little kick in the pants and a little arm around the shoulder. And the kick in the pants is, don't be silent. Don't shrink back from being a witness to Jesus Christ, Paul. And then he gives him some reasons. He gives him some reasons in this passage. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you. Isn't that an encouragement to us? To know that when we're up against trouble, when we're being rejected left and right, when we're thinking about we might need to give up, God's Word says, I am with you. It's going to become big when I unfold this idea of I am with you, I hope. The formula, do not be afraid, is regularly used in the Scriptures um, when somebody... Uh, it, when a theophany happens, right? When the presence of Christ is right there in front of them, there's always this admonition from the Lord, do not be afraid. See, to be in the presence of the Lord should instill in us some fear and awe. This is holy, holy God, right? So whenever you see this in the Scriptures, you see this command, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because you are the recipient of a, vision, of a vision. You are being addressed by God, but don't be afraid. But here in this text, the words are directed at Paul's fears concerning his own position in being opposed by the uh, people of Corinth. Instead of fearing what they may do to him, Paul is commanded to declare the word fearlessly, right? He's commanded to declare the word fearlessly. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you. I am with you, and no one will attack you. Proclaim the word fearlessly. 
Jeremiah 1.8 says, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, God commands His witnesses and prophets to fear not. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I want to give you a few of them. A few of the fear nots. I'll give a few of them to you in rapid succession. I'll try to go slow enough that we get them. Deuteronomy 31.6 Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1.5 No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then everyone knows this passage probably by heart, Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And last, maybe, no, not last. Isaiah uh, 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And, you know, it, makes me, it made me think thoroughly of Paul having received this encouragement from the Lord and, and being one who was encouraged that the Lord was always with him, even in these trials. Later on, when he passes on to his protege, Timothy, to continue in his witness without fear. He says to him in 2 Timothy 1, 6-7, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. The light of Christian witness needs to be set aflame once again, I think, in our churches. Jesus tells us this in the Great Commission, that He is with us to the end of the age. We can trust the Lord to be with us. We can trust the Lord to do the work of salvation. We can trust the Lord to lift us up by His righteous right hand. We need not fear what man may do or say to us. See, because any human that would come against us are only allowed to do what the sovereign will of God directs them to do. Do you have confidence that God is sovereign over everything and everyone? Ultimate confidence, I do. I trust this, that whatever comes my way, God will give me strength. Whatever comes my way is no surprise to my great God. My great God had ordered this for me. If He ordered it for me, He will uphold me through it. If He ordered this problem for me, He's definitely going to uphold me through it. Because He's made that promise, and I believe the promises of God. Humans can only do what the Lord allows them. We can trust the work, uh, the Lord's work in that although there be many people who are opposed to us, and it might be great, He has many people here in Washington County and in Yamhill County that He is calling to Himself. He has many. He has many where you work. You might, you might proclaim where you work every day, the Gospel. You might be rejected by a lot of folks. But He has people there who are called by His name. He has people there called by His name. Wherever we go in the county to eat, to shop, He has people. God has people there that are called by His name. 
You may just only meet the ones that aren't. But He has people there who are called by His name. And since we don't know who they are, what do we do? As Spurgeon says, we preach the whosoever gospel. We preach the gospel to everyone. We don't know who they are. We don't know who the ones who are called by His name. God knows those. I want us to hear this too. God says something about us when we when He proclaims that He is with us, He calls us something different. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thought. In Judges 6, verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and he said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. He's calling to go out and do what the Lord has called him to do, right? And he says, I am with you. And then he says, mighty man of valor. And in Luke, remember when uh, uh, Mary is about to give birth to Jesus. And she's got fears, right? She's freaking out. Because here she is, a virgin, pregnant. She's got society thinking maybe some pretty horrible things about her. And he says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. As many as the Lord has appointed to eternal life, they will believe. So Paul's here in Corinth. He has many in this city who will believe. And he stayed there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. The time to leave one group has been established. And that is when we are certain that hearers oppose God, His Christ, and His Word, it's time to take our work elsewhere. But there's a time to stay. Notice, there's a time to stay. See, converts are made in an instant by the Holy Spirit, aren't they? Be converted to Christ happens in an instant. It's an instantaneous thing. It is God, by His Spirit, taking a heart of stone and turning it to the flesh that they might believe. That happens in an instant. It's instantaneous. You are as saved as you're ever going to be. But disciples are made in, in increasing uh, sanctification and obedience over time. I'm certain that you guys can, can attest to this that you walk much more closely and more circumspect in the Lord now than when you first believed. You're convicted of more things now than when you first believed. That is growth. That is, is from a life being discipled in Christ. Right? That takes time. The Great Commission is this proclamation, but we, we, we call it out to everywhere and to everyone, and then we baptize converts in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission further indicates that we must invest ourselves in each other. We must invest ourselves in each other in an ongoing process. Because in the Great Commission, he says, observing all that Jesus has commanded. Teach them to observe all that Jesus commands. So in the first half, we see that those who are converted, they are baptized, right? Instantaneously, they are in the kingdom of God. They are baptized. They make a public profession of faith. And they are as Christian as they're ever going to be. 
But then he says, don't leave them there. Disciple them. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded. Now, here we are. A lot of us have been Christians for a long time. And I, I would take a vote, but I think you guys, it would be a unanimous vote. Who in here is capable and has so far observed all that Jesus commands? Who here has nothing more to learn from the Word of God? Who here has nothing more to learn of His Christ and His ways? Yeah, see, there's not a hand up. We all need to continue in that growth, in learning to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Because all means all. So, there's a lot of pages in this book about what Jesus commands. All means all. There's a lot. There's a lot for us to do. But that's what we do together, right? Isn't that our work together as a body, is helping one another observe all that Jesus has commanded, right? Some are further along than others. We help those. That is our duty. The Lord commands us in an ongoing process to invest in one another. The Lord commands us to be about kingdom work, to be a church about the Great Commission. So if you are a truck driver, that occupation is a gift from God. And it means to allow you to do the work of making disciples. If you're a stay-at-home mom, one of the parts of that job you're doing is to raise up adults that can function well in society. But it's underpinned by this most important work. You're discipling young people to observe all that Jesus commands. To love God is to be a faithful witness as a Christian's primary occupation. The Great Commission is the primary occupation of every disciple of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage us in remembering this, that this duty was given to you and to me by the one who loved you and freed you from your sin. And this should be our preoccupation.